0: Uh, once again to uh, the book of 1st Corinthians We're returning uh, to 1st Corinthians Once again we're in 1st Corinthians chapter 4 uh, Verses 1 through 7 Actually we're doing verses 1 and 2 today uh, Initially I had planned to do verses 1 through 7 uh, But there's too much here uh, And so we're only going to do um, uh, We're only going to do verses um, 1 and 2 this morning <coughs> This is God's good and kind and gracious word to you and for you this morning So give attention uh, to God's word. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. And so thus ends the reading of God's word. This is his holy word. This is his good word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask for the Lord to help us understand his word today. Pray with me, please. Father, we thank you for giving us again your word. This is your life-giving word. You have given this to your people that we can know you, that we can know the truth of Jesus Christ, that we can glory in Christ. I pray that today, indeed, we would do that, uh, that you would encourage our hearts with the good news of Jesus, and that you would uh, pr- prompt us by your spirit to respond to your grace and to your favor to us, with love, with appreciation, with obedience, uh, with also grace to our fellow man, uh, that we can show uh, your love to others. Father, again, we thank you for uh, giving us this word today. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I don't typically do New Year's resolutions. I used to do New Year's resolutions. Um, uh, and then I realized that every year I did that, I was setting myself up for failure. and. Uh, I talked with you all about my failures enough. I didn't need more failures added to the list of failures. And so I stopped doing them. And then I read an article by uh, Paul Tripp uh, that basically said, stop doing New Year's resolutions because people don't change. You don't actually change by making these big, grand resolutions. But in fact, people change, according to Paul Tripp, and I think he's right, uh, by making a thousand small changes in your life. Uh, and so, uh, I don't do new year's resolutions every, uh, 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 anymore. Um, that's not to say that I don't see places in my life where I can improve. I certainly need to be sanctified in Christ as we all do. And I do hope that you see those things as well. And I hope that you're, uh, that you would like to be more and more sanctified in Christ, that you would like to become more and more in Christ, uh, But having said that, I don't want to um, encourage you to make resolutions necessarily, but I do think we have a gospel challenge to us today in this new year from this text of Scripture. Uh, That there is a call in this text of Scripture for Christians to live in a certain way. And Paul gives us this call, but it's not a call to live, uh, uh, it's not necessarily a call to do a lot of things. It's not a call to read your Bible more, although reading your Bible more is a good thing. And I do hope that you'll commit to reading your Bible this year. That would be a wonderful thing for you to do. Uh, Paul doesn't, in this passage, necessarily give a call to us to be moral people, although that is a requirement of Christ's people is to be moral, to live up to the standards of the law uh, that he has set for us. Um, Ultimately, what I think we see in this passage is a call from the Apostle Paul to live in light of who God says we are. That's what Paul's doing in this passage. He's saying and telling the Corinthian believers who he is in light of who God says he is. And in verses 3 through 7 that we'll deal with next week, he talks about the judgment of God on his life. But he sets that up today for us in these two verses where he tells us how God or how... Paul and gospel ministers in general are to be regarded by the people of the church. And then secondly, what is required of those gospel ministers or how you are actually to judge the success of those gospel ministers. And he's doing this because in the Corinthian church, there's a lot of division. They are divided over various different Bible teachers and they're dividing themselves according to different preferences uh, about the style of the preachers that are coming in and the things that they're saying and how they're saying. And ultimately what Paul is driving home to them is that that what they're saying that they prefer is actually revealing a heart that is selfish, that desires what they want over anything else. So he's correcting these divisions by saying, well, here's how you should judge gospel ministers by those who are called to be servants of Christ to proclaim the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean that this has no application to you. Actually, I think this has a great deal of application to you. And again, there's a challenge in this to you to live in light of who God says you are. So, the first thing, how are you regarded? I want you to ask that question. How are you regarded? Look there again at verse four or four, verse one. Paul says, This is how one should regard us. And he says, this is how it should be regarded as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Again, divisions in the church of Corinth, divisions over what makes a good preacher, what makes a good pastor, what makes a good gospel minister. There are some that say, I prefer Paul, some that say, I prefer Apollos, some that say, I prefer Peter, some that say, well, you know, I'm really spiritual and I prefer Jesus. I'm better than all of you. And Paul said, well, okay, let's get down to it and say, well, what makes a good gospel preacher? What makes a good apostle? What makes a good evangelist, as Apollos was? Those causing the divisions were self-promoters. And I I do want to make a side point here that people who cause division in churches are ultimately causing divisions over what they want. They're not, they use various things to say, well, this is what the real problem is. But they they actually are trying to promote themselves, and that's what's happening here, okay? Um, So Paul is addressing those issues, and he says, okay, what you need to know is what is the job description of the apostle? Paul is an apostle. Apollos is an evangelist. There are pastors and other folks that are coming in and preaching and proclaiming the good news in, in Corinth. So what makes a good apostle? What makes a good minister? Well, it's not what we would expect. Paul doesn't say, you know, a good servant of Christ is a CEO, like a CEO of a major corporation, a good leader, a good person, a person who knows how to tell people what to do. It's not even a CFO, a good financial officer, somebody that knows how to handle the financials of that organization. It's not a chief organizational officer, somebody who's really good at administrative tasks. It's not somebody who's charismatic or outgoing or any of those things. That's not the job description that Paul gives here of a servant of Christ. What are they? Well, he says very clearly, they are servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. So there you go. There's the job description of gospel ministers, from apostles down to lowly old me, pastor of Faith Presbyterian Church. They are servants of Christ, stewards of the mystery of God. Now let's deal, first of all, with what he says there. They are servants. The word servant is used all over the place in the New Testament. And almost all of the time it's used, it is used, a very specific word is used. Sometimes in our translations, it's translated as bond servant. Sometimes it's translated as slave, because this is the way that slavery operated uh, in in the ancient days. They were largely considered to be bond servants, meaning they were indentured servants to their masters for a time, but could buy their freedom either by their work or by actually paying for their freedom. They could purchase their own freedom. And almost all the times that you read the word servant, or you see that word in the the New Testament, it's the word bond servant that's used. But here, Paul uses a very specific word for servant. It's actually the word that means under rower. You think, well, what's an under rower? Well, this is a very specific nautical term For one of the slaves that would have been put down in the bottom of the ship, in one of those Roman ships, that would have been responsible for helping to row these massive boats. It's a very specific term. It would have been a slave, someone who was responsible to his master, but he had a very specific job description. What was his job description? His job description was to follow the person that was telling him how to row. So he would be in a line, in a long line. There would be two lines, one on this side, one on this side. He would be in one of those lines. And whenever the master of the ship said, row, you row. When the master of the ship said, stop rowing, you stop rowing. When the master of the ship said, go slow, you go slow. When the master of the ship said, you go fast, you go fast. You follow what the master says. And Paul says, that is what I am. He says, I am a servant, an under rower. I am under the master. And I have been given this very specific job description, this very limited job description. This is what I have been born to do according to the calling of Christ that is on me. I don't do all of these other things. I do this one thing. I listen to what the master says I should do. I'm an under rower. And so Paul says that's what, that's what gospel ministers are. We have a very limited uh, calling uh, on what we are meant to be doing uh, in uh, in this organization, the church, that God is building. That's the first thing. He says they're under rowers. They're servants. The second thing is that, that gospel ministers are stewards of the mysteries of God. Stewards of the mysteries of God. Well, what is a steward? A steward uh, is a person uh, who is responsible for someone else's stuff. Um, We have plenty of modern examples of this, and there are two really excellent modern examples of stewards. One of them is really nerdy um, from Lord of the Rings. I'm not going to do that to you all today. But the other one is another favorite uh, one of mine, and many of you have seen this show, Downton Abbey. And you've watched the the Crowleys who own the abbey, who own the big house, and they run the big house, and then the servants that live downstairs, uh, and the head servant, the butler of the house, is really the steward of the house. His name was Mr. Carson. And as you watch this show unfold, you see see that Mr. Carson, as the steward of the Crowley house, takes his job very seriously. He actually takes his job more seriously than the Crowleys who own the house, who have the royal titles, take their job. And the Crowleys themselves know that they are not to mess with Mr. Carson. They are obedient even to the one who is the steward of the house, the servant of the house. Who lives downstairs? Mister Crowley's entire, or Mister Carson's entire life is devoted to the Crowleys, devoted to the house, to see them thrive, to see them grow, to see them succeed. So everything, including the silverware, the polishing on the silver silverware, uh, the the amount of cork that is stuck in the wine, and the little details there, you see him going through, and and uh, uh, meticulously making sure that everything in the house that he is responsible for, runs well. Well, what does Paul say that that gospel ministers are stewards of? We're not stewards of the house of God. Do you see that? We're not stewards of God's house. We actually have a much more limited job description than that. We are stewards of the mysteries of God. You think, wow, that's pretty big, and it is a big deal, but what are the mysteries of God? everywhere in the New Testament that the word mystery is used. It has a very specific definition. And that definition is the mystery of the revelation of Jesus Christ. The things that were proclaimed in the Old Testament that were shadows now have been brought to light. So the mysteries of God are the good news of Jesus Christ who has come to both save and sanctify sinners for himself. Gospel ministers are called to be stewards of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is our responsibility. I am to be meticulous about the good news of Jesus Christ. And why is that? Because there is only one way for salvation for sinners before God. And that is through the name of Jesus Christ. And companion to that, there is only one way for you and I to be sanctified. To be more and more like Christ. To be fit for heaven. To become more like Christ and that is through the name of Jesus Christ. So this is the job description that Paul gives to himself and then by extension gives to everyone who is called to be a gospel minister, to be a servant of Christ. You notice that? Servant of Christ. I'm called to serve Christ. And because Christ serves you, I'm also called to serve all of Christ's people as well but then also to be a steward of the mysteries of God. So there's two applications, I think, uh, to you in this. And that is, how are you to regard gospel ministers, first of all? And then secondly, I think there is an extension to how you should regard yourself. How should you think about yourself? How should you think about your calling before God and what God has called you to? First of all, gospel ministers have a limited job description. This is, in some ways, very self serving, and I recognize this, but it's not me saying this. This is Paul saying this. Gospel ministers have a very limited job description. We are to steward the mysteries of God by serving you in the church with those mysteries, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what I am called to do. That's what Casey has been called to do. All right? So that's the first thing. That's our calling. What about you? Well, isn't there a sense in which you also are called to be a servant of Christ and a steward of the mysteries of God? Casey prayed this already, that we have been called kings and priests of the living God, and that's all of us. There's a sense in which you maybe have not been called specifically to the ordained office of a gospel minister, but you also have been granted the mysteries of God, the the gospel of Jesus Christ, and so you have that responsibility as well to steward those things. Maybe not to the extent that the gospel minister does, but in a general way, you have been given that stewardship as well. But aren't you also stewards of other things? Because what have you not been given by God? The answer is you have been given everything by God. God has given you everything that you have. And therefore, because it belongs to him, he has given it to you to steward Everything that you have, everything that you are, you are called to steward it for God, to give it back to God. Because there's going to be a day when you will have to give an account for everything that you have done and everything that God has given you. You are a steward of God. You are to serve Christ by stewarding the things that you have, the things that God has given you, for His sake, to serve Christ because you also are a servant of Christ and a steward of the mysteries of God. There you go. That is how you are to regard yourself when you walk out of this church today. I want you to think this: I am a servant of Christ, and I am a steward of the mysteries of God. That's the first challenge. Well, then, secondly, you say, well, okay, well, what about what? What should I do? How? What's required of me as a servant and as a steward? How should I live my life uh, because of these things? Well, in verse 2, he actually tells you the standard of judgment and how you can judge success of whether or not you've been a good steward and a good servant. Look in verse 2. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. Um, I've mentioned this before, and I know the wills especially have... uh, We've talked about this. But um, in organizations, organizations have these vision statements, right? Um, and and I'm fascinated by vision statements. I'm fascinated because um, in, in organizations, the way that organizations tend to grow is they start small, and you have a small group of people working together, rowing together, and you don't need someone telling them which direction they should row because they all understand. But then as that organization is more successful and grows... Well, you get more and more people involved, and as more and more people get involved, there's less and less attachment to that original vision in the organization. And then at some point, the organization gets to a point where the people that first started that organization or who are in charge of that organization go, we're all rowing in, the, in different directions. We need to have something that we're all looking to, and we, we need to know exactly what we're to be doing. So what do they do? They create a vision statement. Uh, I looked up a couple of vision statements in preparation for this, and one of my favorites is Johnson & Johnson. Johnson & Johnson is one of the largest companies, one of the largest organizations that the world has ever known. Very successful business that's out there, and um, this um, this is their vision statement. For every person to use their unique experience and background together to spark solutions that create a better and healthier world. That's Johnson & Johnson's vision statement. Johnson & Johnson, you know, the, the people that run Johnson & Johnson, they said, we need to give a vision for our people to make sure we're all working toward the same goal. So this is, and Johnson & Johnson is telling you, I want the rest of the world to judge us based on this vision statement. What is included in this vision statement from Johnson & Johnson? They want you to judge them based on their diversity, they want you to judge them based on their inclusion of all kinds of different people. They want you to judge them based on their innovation. And they want you to judge them based on their hygienic progress that they're able to accomplish in the world. Those four things, essentially, that Johnson & Johnson is saying. They, they say, judge us according to this. This is what we think we are required to do as an organization. And if you actually believe that the people of Johnson & Johnson, that run Johnson & Johnson, care anything about any of those things then I've got some property, uh, oceanfront property to sell you in Arizona because they don't care about that. What does Johnson & Johnson want? They want to be a successful business. They want their bottom line to grow because that's what businesses are about. And ultimately, the way that Johnson & Johnson judges themselves is according to their bottom line. Well, in this passage, Paul says, here's how you judge a church. Here's how you judge um, the gospel ministers. What is the standard of judgment? Moreover, he says, stewards are to be considered or or, um, found trustworthy. That's the word faithfulness. How are you to judge gospel ministers? Now, we live in a bottom line sort of world where we look at the numbers and we say, what do the numbers look like? And if the numbers look okay, then everything is all right, and that person must be a success. We do the same thing in churches. That as long as the numbers look okay, then the church is a success. But notice here, Paul doesn't say, Moreover, it is required of stewards that they make sure that the church is in the black all the time. Moreover, that they make sure that the attendance numbers are great all the time. That's how you judge the success of a gospel minister or of a church. Paul says that success, specifically of his ministry and of the ministries of gospel ministers, it's not to be judged by things like exuberance, by effectiveness. It's not to be judged by giftedness, by stylishness, by intelligence, by charisma, likability, any of those things. All of those things are great. Paul says, you don't judge The gospel ministers according to those things. How do you judge them? You judge them according to faithfulness in stewarding the mysteries of God. So what's the application to you then at this point? Well, this is the way that I want my ministry to be judged. This is the way that Casey's ministry needs to be judged. This is the way that we need to judge churches in this world. So that's the first application. How are you actually judging success for gospel ministers and for churches? And that is self-serving. Yes, I recognize that. But hopefully it's a way for you to understand that we have one who is judging us according to this standard. We'll talk more about that next week. But that's something for you to just keep in mind. It's a challenge to you as well. You know, I could get very discouraged as a gospel minister to look out at this congregation this morning. And I know that a lot of people are sick and a lot of people are out. But where is everybody? You know what I've discovered? I can't make people stay at this church. I'm not gifted at that. Am I not a success before God because I can't keep people at this church? No. But... Am I being faithful to the mysteries of God, to steward those mysteries? I hope I am. And I need y'all's help in that. That's just one application to you. Um, It's something, you know, 2022, who knows what 2022 holds for this church? I don't know. You don't know. We don't know. But how are we going to judge success in this church? That's one application. But I think for you in particular, you know, when you leave the walls of the church Building, how do you live your life? Well, how are you to judge success in your own life? Well, if you are a steward as well, a steward of the things that God has given you, here is the standard of success it's according to your faithfulness. So, for parents, how are you using your God given resources to show your children the gospel of Jesus Christ? not just give them a heads up in the rest of the world uh, uh, before the rest of the world spouses you know Christ came to serve so how can you serve not just your needs but the needs of your spouse if you're an employer this morning how can you be generous because Christ was generous with you and has been generous with you if you're an employee this morning You know, you're called to work hard and to steward that job that God has given you because God has worked hard for you and for children. How can you steward the resources that God has given you? God has given you a family for you to learn in obedience and humble obedience before him. That's the way that you will be judged, not according to your success and your flashiness and how good you are at all of these things, but it's according to your faithfulness with the mysteries of God. Now this morning you might be thinking, well, that's a heavy weight. That's a heavy challenge because I do want you to leave here and I want you to think about these things as you leave here. How can I steward the things of God, the mysteries of God in 2022? How can I serve Christ with these mysteries in 2022? But in conclusion, I want you to think about something else. How are you ultimately judged? I went to a pastor's retreat in October this year, um, and it was a fantastic retreat where I needed to be reminded of some things. Uh, Ed Hartman of First uh, Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi, was the leader of this retreat, um, and he does this—he um, he does these uh, seminars for pastors to talk about the emotional life of the pastor, um, something that I don't think about very often. But he said he started it out by, by saying, you know, every day that he and his wife go to work and they part ways, when one of them's driving away, they do this. I think, well, that's a weird thing. Why would you do that? And he said, well, because there's something, they were watching the Special Olympics. And in the Special Olympics, they were watching these blind uh, uh, racers race. And what they would do is they would have somebody running with them uh, and, and so that they would know. They would listen to and they would follow the person in front of them. Uh, and to know when they finished the race and they would run. And then he said There's something amazing. These people that had been blind their entire life, they would cross the finish line and they would ame- immediately do this. They would raise their hands in victory because you see the V that's there, victory. They had never seen anybody do that, but it was instinctive. You realize that? That it's instinctive. Whenever you have the victory, what do you do? When Alabama wins the national championship game, what are they going to do? Are they Are going to do that? I don't like saying that, but it's probably going to happen. Wait, wait. Yeah. Whenever you win, you do that. I thought it was really neat that he and his wife every day, they do that to each other. Now, why would they do that in the morning whenever they leave each other? Because they're reminding themselves that when Christ thinks of you, this is how he thinks of you. This is how Christ feels about you. That when he looks at you, he says, victory, you have won. And why have you won? You've won because he has won the race for you. That your success in this life is going to be judged based on the faithfulness of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. That today, if you have faith in him, this is you. You have won. Here's your challenge. I want you to think about yourself the way that Christ thinks about you. You have already won the victory. You have already finished the race. And you are victorious in Christ. We have a great privilege of sharing more of that next week as we see Paul work these things things out for us. But I just want to remind you as well, we're about to come to the table of Jesus Christ and he invites all those who are victorious in him to come and partake of this table, to come and enjoy this table because he has won the victory for us to taste and see that he is good and has been good and remains good for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us this word today. Lord, you have called us to be servants and stewards of Christ. I pray that you would help us to work out what these things mean for for your people, but also to live in light of what you think of us, of the things that are true of us in Christ, that we are victorious in him. We thank you for this good news. We thank you for your great love. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to move now uh, into our